0: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. What you're about to hear is the second part of a multi-part series on the history of the ideology of libertarianism. I'm, I've am i spent quite a bit of time working on this, and I'm really excited to bring it to you. I'm trying something really new here. This is a narrative series, um, unlike the interviews I normally do. And, yeah... I haven't really heard anything like this, so I'd love your feedback, Um, including critical feedback. Some people wrote to me after the last one telling me all sorts of criticisms, but I think it only made this one stronger, so I welcome that. And then if you like it, please let me know that as well. Um, And finally, like I say, I am trying something really new here, so if you like it, um, please share and help get it out there. Okay, part two of my history of libertarianism, evolution and equilibrium. What would you make of the claim that society is a living biological being? Not that society is made up or comprised of living biological beings, but itself can be understood as a biological entity, that the ways in which groups of people, countries, progress and develop and change can be understood according to the principles of evolution and can be modelled in the same terms, and with the same language. It would sound odd, right? And it does sound odd to our ears. And I think people say, well, obviously it's not. And if I said, well, you know, maybe consider it as a metaphor, you'd be like, okay, we can use it as a metaphor, but it would always, very clearly in your head, be just that, right? I'm going to talk about this, because... For an entire generation of thinkers from across the political spectrum, this was how they thought about the world. They would argue about whether evolution and the necessities of it demanded socialism, liberalism, capitalism, fascism, even. And this is a prime instance, and this is why I'm going to go into it, of we see the trick very clearly when someone else has fallen for it, right? What's going on here and why are different ideological traditions importing language from a scientific theory that seemingly has very little to say about the merits or lack thereof of socialism? We see the trick clearly when it's being done to someone else. I'm then going to look at another import of scientific language directly into political debate, but one that we don't see as that, one that in many ways we just see as science, and argue that really they're kind of the same thing. So, as is common with my editorial episodes, I'm essentially playing a trick on the audience, and I'm giving the trick away up front. But before we get into any of that, let's start with evolution. Now, Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, is going to be published pretty much coterminously with the sorts of debates that we looked at last time. So just to bring you up to speed in the last on the story we told last time, we looked at the divergence of libertarianism from liberalism in the 1800s. Now, somebody wrote me quite a thoughtful email and asked me why I picked Herbert Spencer as the founder of libertarianism, given that he would not have described himself as a libertarian. I'm not necessarily saying he was the founder, or he originated it, and... Certainly, as I pointed out in the last episode, the term libertarian wasn't around at the time for him to apply to himself. Rather, what I'm arguing is beginning in maybe the early 1800s and certainly clearly visible um, by the middle to late 1800s, you see two different ideological groupings diverging from a common ancestor so the common ancestor is early liberalism i sometimes think of it as proto liberalism someone like john locke is a great example here the first historical layer of liberalism is the demand for individual rights and the limitations on some of the powers of the state right now the second historical um, layer, we might say. I'm taking all of this, by the way, from Michael Friedan's book called Liberalism. The second historical layer of liberalism is the idea of free trade, right? Which is understood oftentimes instrumentally as a way of f- furthering human flourishing and development, and as we'll see, doesn't yet include many of the specifics of the field of economics that we now associate with those claims. On top of that, the next layer is a liberalism that I think of as progressive liberalism, in that it's about progressing both societies and individuals. It's about, as John Stuart Mill says rather wonderfully, the permanent ends of man as a progressive being. Further on in the story, Further layers will be added. You'll have welfare state liberalism. Then after that, you'll have procedural liberalism. We'll get to those, but we're not there yet. At this point in the story, though, elements within liberalism, people who would not have seen themselves as conservatives necessarily, and certainly not as socialists, are already beginning to distance and detach themselves from this they can, in a way they can sort of see where it's going they can sort of see that progressive liberalism will become welfare state liberalism they they sort of correctly perceive the beginning of that drift. And on an ideological level, what that looks like is whereas progressive liberalism is a cluster of a number of different goals, including freedom, individuality, but also including development and progress, limited accountable power, the idea of the common good or of society. This other sort of liberal shrinks all of that down to individuality, freedom, and property. Now, that second sort of liberal, I would call a libertarian, although, again, they would not have the term to define themselves with. So, in a way, I would argue there isn't really a founder of libertarianism. It's like, you know, two different... Well, here here we go. This is an evolutionary metaphor, right? At what point in evolutionary divergence does one species become two separate species? Or, to put it in a Wittgensteinian way... Um, perhaps at the beginning of the 1800s, certainly in the 1700s, you have a family of ideas that you would call liberalism. And then by the middle to end of the 1800s, it's quite clear, and it's clear to the people at the time, that you have two distinct families. And they recognize themselves as such. And if you take a snapshot of two different thinkers, Spencer and Mill, you can see the divergence by that point. So that's sort of up to speed with the story and where we got. I now want to add another element of the way that these two different groups are going to compete with each other for the control of language. So again, one of the primary things these groups are doing when they compete with each other as well as competing, by the way, with conservatives, with socialists later on in the story, with fascists. One of the ways they do that is to try and control the meaning of words. Freedom, according to Mill, is being in a state of development, being in autonomy, uh, being in a state that uh, reconciles the, the needs of society and of the individual. That's not what freedom means. Herbert Spencer comes in. Freedom means when you are left alone by the government, but your property rights are protected. That's what freedom means. Oh, no, it isn't, says L.T. Hobhouse later in the story. He says, no, freedom needs to be under dot, 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 and so on and so forth. Not just freedom, but all of the other different concepts we've covered there. The political, the idea of society, These these two different groups are fighting with each other for the control of what those words mean, right? So the end game is when someone says, we want everyone to be free, they will mean, and everyone else will understand them to mean, what a particular ideology wants them to mean. And by controlling the meaning of words, they can control the future direction of society. That's the end game for ideologies. Now, one Tool that ideologies very, very commonly use in attempting to exert that influence and control is they try and make their preferred conceptions of words seem as objective as possible, as rational as possible, indeed, as scientific as possible. It's not just that our version of liberty or freedom is better than yours, ours is correct in some fundamental ontological sense that yours isn't and it's that that move to correctness that idea to try and get to the top of the pile by saying this isn't just my preference this isn't even a moral claim this is a scientific claim it's that particular tactic that i want to explore in this episode cuz like i say you can see the tactic very very clearly when it's applied from the outside, but what's fascinating about this story is recognizing that tactic in yourself, recognizing that it has been successfully applied to you, and that you understand certain things as scientific and objective that are not at all because of the ideological victories that certain ideologies of one in the past that impact your brain today at a subconscious level i'll get back to that point but let's dig in here and talk about uh, an instance where i think you'll see it clearly where the running together of scientific and political and moral language seems odd and counterintuitive to us And let's start with Herbert Spencer, because he really kicks this off in a lot of ways. As you may well know, well, maybe you won't. Let's try it as a question. Who coined the phrase survival of the fittest? You associate it with uh, Darwin, right? It wasn't. It was Herbert Spencer. Isn't that interesting? Now, a couple of people accused me in advance of... um, misinterpreting um Herbert Spencer's theory of evolution so I will say that Herbert Spencer is a very sophisticated thinker and this is complex and difficult and I'm certainly not going to try and get into all of the complexities here um much less of all the nuances of the actual development of the theory of evolution I'm more interested in what did these ideas do in the world? How were they received and what was their impact? Because Spencer, by the way, was an extraordinarily impactful figure. Like today, probably more people have heard of Mill. But in his time, Herbert Spencer was recognized as the sort of preeminent philosopher in the world like, I think he sold more books in his lifetime than any other philosopher ever, which is very interesting to think about in in retrospect. So, here's a quick, rough sketch. So, firstly, while Darwin was an absolutely pivotal figure, there were ideas about, um, like, you, you might say proto-evolutionary ideas. Ideas that sort of hinted at a lot of the elements of this theory, um, including in Herbert Spencer's writing. So in his works through the 1850s, he was already talking about evolution or some of the sort of forerunners of this theory. He read Origin of Species, which was published in 59, and he coined the term survival of the fittest in his Principles of Biology, which was in 1864. And then later, Darwin encounters the phrase through um, Wallace and begins um, including it in his own work. Um, which just shows you um, how closely intertwined the scientific and the political are here. So in The Principles of Biology, Spencer is drawing parallels between his own economic theories and Darwin's biological ones. So let's do a quote from that. Quote, The survival of the fittest, which I have thought to express in mechanical terms, is that which Mr. Darwin has called natural selection, or the preservation of favoured races in the struggle for life. End quote. So what Herbert Spencer is going to do with this idea, we would, you could think of as social Darwinism. Now, social Darwinism has since become a sort of insult, right? If you call someone a social Darwinist, you're sort of um, calling them uncaring or vicious or whatever. It's something that's completely gone out of, uh, of favour. Um, but that was the end to which Herbert Spencer put this. So this was a view that the rich were there, and the people at t- the top of society were there, because in a sense, they had succeeded in an evolutionary struggle. They had proved themselves most able to adapt to their environment. That's a sort of interesting notion, Right And it recurs again and again and again in conservative thought. So I mean all the way up to someone like Charles Murray today who sort of propagates the idea of like IQ as a sort of sorting mechanism for society and um, the, the people who were there at the top are there because they have the highest IQs and um, the people at the bottom, including in Charles Murray's explicit language, you know, explicit theory, are black people are at the bottom because they have lower IQs. And one of the things that I think bugs a lot of us about this approach is it's so often wheeled out with just no conception of ideological history. And you want to say, like, do you realize people have been justifying the social hierarchy using imports from various scientific fields forever? You are not new here. Anyway, that's an aside. Now, I'm not going to go super into, like, all the ways in which um, Herbert Spencer thought that the principle of evolution was operative but he did regard it as something that really um ran through from the scientific to the political and to the moral so let's do a quote and you don't need to follow every exact claim of this quote the point is more the point is more to just take the flavor of how he's using this so um quote Now, we propose in the first place that this law of organic process is the law of all progress. Whether it be in the development of the earth, the development of life upon its surface, in the development of society, of government, of manufacture, of commerce, of language, literature, science, art, this same evolution of the simple into the complex through a process of continuous differentiation holds throughout end quote so that's really interesting isn't it so he's saying that it is the same process of evolution that's at work in society and again this is just a claim that seems very odd to the modern ear but it was very very important to him so what was the impact of this on the world what did this do i said already spencer was one of maybe the Most prominent philosopher of his day. Well, overall, his political and economic philosophy was most picked up by political conservatives, particularly his Law of Equal Liberty. Um, This proved really useful for conservatives, not just for um, its justification of the hierarchy of the social classes, but Also, a conception of society, a conception of justice, which emphasized the responsibility of individuals for themselves, for what happens to them, for the outcomes that they um, get in life. And obviously, that is a huge thing for conservatives, right? They want to justify the sort of hierarchy of classes, particularly. And let's remind ourselves of this. I always have to pinch myself and remind myself that these people are not our contemporaries, right? Just remember that most of the countries at this time still have a bleeding aristocracy. Not like a sort of aristocracy of like moneyed interests or no 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 no. all the way up until the you know the first world war and even through that you're going to have major military and economic decisions being made by like viscounts and earls and people who (laughs) a lot of the time would never have gotten into a position of power um if merit was a criteria so You have to understand there's still that element to this world, and it's something that can justify that. And I'm not saying necessarily Herbert Spencer was that person, but there is a strong interest in that world in picking up any ideas that can justify that and using them to do so. Um, Also, multiple um, going a little bit forward in history um, and across the pond, multiple American Supreme Court justices um um explicitly used Herbert Spencer and his theories um with regards to um protections for big business um particularly um, protections from business against um government regulation which again is that sounding quite modern right but and it's important to note this picking up on the idea of using evolution in political arguments um was all across the political spectrum. So a number of people picked up on Spencer's ideas, particularly on the phrase survival of the fittest, which, you know, you've got to hand it to the guy, right? Like, he co- that is a phrase that has stuck. You have heard that, even if you're not a political scientist, even if, you know, you don't know biology at all, you've heard the phrase survival of the fittest, right? Like, that was even if that was his only legacy, which it wasn't. That's pretty cool to have to have come up with that. Um, but many, many um, socialists and anarchists pick this up. So um, I was researching the phrase, and um, let's do a couple more quotes. So this is, we're skipping forward a little bit head in time to, like, very end of the 18th century, Um, turn of the century into the 1900s. I'll do a few quotes from around this period. Um, Russian anarchist, and by the way, I'm going to butcher some of these names. I don't spend my time talking about this stuff. I just read this stuff, so if I get some foreign names wrong, I apologize in advance. Um, But Russian anarchist Peter Koroptkin, again, sorry Russians, um, viewed the concept of survival of the fittest as supporting... Um, cooperation rather than competition. So he wrote a book called Mutual Aid, a Factor of Evolution, where he argued that the Darwinian worldview led to socialism. So let's do a quote. Quote, in the animal world, we have seen that the vast majority of species live in societies and that they find in association the best arms for the struggle of life, Understood, of course, in its wide Darwinian sense, not as a struggle for the sheer means of existence, but as a struggle against all natural conditions unfavourable to the species. The animal species, in which individual struggle has been reduced to its narrowest limits and the practice of mutual aid has been attained, the greatest development are invariably the most numerous and prosperous. End quote. So isn't that interesting? He's saying, you know, if we want to base our society on evolution, then that's necessarily going to be a socialist society because the societies that, su- the, the, the societies that are going to survive are going to be the ones that um, work together closely rather than just descend into mere, mere individualism. So, isn't that interesting? And it's not just him, by the way, on the socialist side. There's going to come this... I, I don't have time to cover it here. But there's going to come this whole big fallout within Marxism, Um almost like a sort of like reformation moment where it's like do we hold true to the original true teachings of saint mark's or do we do we allow deviations do we do we abandon hegelian metaphysics um and so you're gonna get um edward bernstein is the figure that really comes to mind here explicitly write a book um called evolutionary socialism. And then that will be critiqued by orthodox, you know, Marxists like uh, Rosa Luxemburg would be the big figure on the other side. But again, he's he's explicitly drawing in the idea of evolution to justify a particular approach to um, political theory. Liberalism too. So we've noticed um, how conservatives really loved this set of ideas but socialists did as well and that'll be no different for liberals in advocating um for this uh richer and more fuller set of core ideas that we outlined earlier which balances out the needs of individuals and the needs of society um liberals are going to start to say well hang on Like, actually, this is sort of like the evolutionary variant. And if we start to think about society as an organism, that would actually lend support to our ideas. So you've got um, Ritchie at the turn of the century writing, and he says, quote, the conception of society as an organism seems to admit of a more easy applications to the defense of those very views of the state that Mr. Spencer most dislikes. End quote. So he's he's saying, um, well, hang on. Views about state interference, maybe in the economy for the good of workers, or in you know a developmental conception of human nature, or in you know regulation. He's saying, well, if you think about society as an organism, then. Actually, all of that stuff seems to be justified when you do that view. There's two other thinkers on the liberal side to mention quickly, Hobson and Hobhouse, and they both um, really import this so-called organic analogy as well. So, um, Hobhouse, here's a quote from him, talking about society as, quote, harmonious interaction the response of each to each that makes of society a living whole, end quote. And then his colleague Hobson, I'm going to do a slightly longer quote here, because this is directly addressing itself, not just to an individualist libertarianism, but to an individualist libertarianism, are uh, cloaked in the scientific authority of evolution. So, quote, the unity of socio-industrial life is not a unity of mere fusion in which the individual virtually disappears, but a federal unity in which the rights and interests of the individual shall be conserved for him by the federal government. The federal government, however, conserves these individual rights, not as the individualist maintains, because it exists for no other purpose than to do so, it conserves them because it also recognises that an area of individual liberty is conductive to the health of collective life. Its federal nature rests on a recognition alike of individual and social ends, or, speaking more accurately, of social ends that are directly attained by social action and of those that are realised in individuals. End quote. Isn't that a lovely quote? And that's explicitly cashing out. And so this is a little bit later on. This is past the turn of the century in uh, 1914, so just just prior to First World War, um, in that... For the liberalism of the time, what I've been calling progressive liberalism, it recognizes both social needs and individual needs as ends in itself. And it explicitly argues, if you view society as an organism, if you view it in natural or Darwinian or biological terms, then you'll realize that it is in the interests of the survival of that organism to allow certain protections for individual rights and certain collective goals in the need of society. Isn't this all just so interesting and so counterintuitive? This is not how liberals today talk, right? This isn't how libertarians today talk. And while... While I do have a certain sympathy and affinity with the sort of liberal variant of this, let's just step back and look at what's going on. So, you've all you know, you've got conservatives, you've got libertarians, you've got liberals, you've got socialists, and they're all playing the same game. They're all trying to get their meaning of words across and now they're all using this same tactic of saying, well, our meaning of words, our particular moral conceptions, ideological conceptions, however you want to think about this, our conceptions are what's implied by evolutionary biology. Some of it's more self-conscious than others, but they're all using this as a stick to hit each other with. They're all trying to get their preferred meaning of words to the top of the pile, and they're all using this sort of pseudo-scientific language to do it. Now, what I want to argue in this podcast is that this is actually nothing unusual. This is something political ideologies do, all the time, is they they attempt to try and argue that what they are arguing politically or morally is true scientifically. And even if it's not literally true scientifically, it's like basically kind of true scientifically. They want to run it together. They want to muddy the waters. They want to make their claims as hard and objective as possible. You can go all the way sort of back to Plato and the theory of the forms and, he really wants to argue that his worldview is, I mean, he wouldn't have the concept of science as we now know it, but is sort of scientifically true. Fast forward to the early modern period, you have um, Thomas Hobbes um, famously reads um, A Proof of Pythagoras's Theorem and says, my God, I love it, now I get it, and self-consciously saw what he was doing in his work as a sort of moral algebra, right? No different. So let's go back to the mid-1800s, mid to late 1800s, and look at the same period again, but look at the importing of another set of scientific truth claims about the world. Their use as metaphors or even the direct claim that this is actually what's happening in the social and political world. But this time, instead of coming from biology, they're going to come from physics. So there's going to be a direct import, in a much more almost paint-by-numbers sense, of many of the techniques and principles from Newtonian physics onto understanding the social world. And this is going to result in the field of economics. Now, I can already sort of hear people pushing back against this, but just work with me for a little bit here. So, this is a quote from Walter Weisskopf, the method is the ideology, um, which I quite like. So, quote, the Newtonian paradigm used in classical and neoclassical economics, interpreted the economy according to a pattern developed in classical physics and mechanics, a closed, autonomous system ruled by endogenous, mutually independent factors of a highly selective nature, self-regulating and moving towards a determinate, predictable point of equilibrium. End quote. So that was quite a heavy quote, and we're going to unpack that a lot, but let's just go back and revisit it. In other words, let's try and um, think about this visually. So if you imagine like a Newtonian system, so like the planets orbiting around the sun, there's certain forces acting on these, and when those forces are balanced in a certain way, you'll get a stable pattern, right? The planet just goes round round and round and round and round and round, Or, conversely, when you have two forces applying against each other, then you can reach a point where they become still. And classical economics is going to interpret the economy in a similar way, where you have these, you know, discrete objects like people and firms and so on that can reach, again, this definite point of equilibrium. Now, this idea had been there before, You get a similar sort of set of ideas in Spencer, for instance, Um, but it's really going to take on a new life when given this Newtonian metaphor of expressing itself. And I say metaphor. Um, Robert Solow, in his growth theory, said of the field of economics, you have to understand this is a parable you don't ask of a parable if it's literally true. You ask if it's well told. But what I want to call your attention to here is the way most people's assumptions when you talk about economics as an ideological construct get defensive, because it runs through our institutional thinking in academia, in business, in so much of the world. We're less able to see the same trick As we are in the case of evolution. Now that's not to say necessarily that the ideological claims being cashed out by this metaphor are wrong, just to notice the tactic as it's happening. So where does this start? This is often dated back to Adam Smith I'm going to argue that when you're looking at the development of economic theory as a distinct ideological position, and this, by the way, is something on which, like, nobody agrees with me, but I've argued for a long time now that you can understand the field of economics as a political ideology, and um, I'd argue that's a bit later. I'd argue that Adam Smith is certainly talking about the market and free trade, but he's doing so from essentially a liberal or even like a classically liberal position. I would claim that the fundamentals of this ideological position... The the roots on which it draws have been in place for a while, but its its distinct formulation crystallises in the 1870s with the publication of three books that have a very, very similar sort of conceptual morphology to them. Again, apologies if I get the pronunciation of names a little wrong, but you have... um, Jevons' Theory of Political Economy, you have Walras' Elements of Pure Economics, and you have Karl Merger's Principles of Economics. Um, The ideology that you find in these works is virtually the same, and it it builds on and systematizes a lot of the the, um, ideological elements to do with freedom and individuality that you find in... um, the older liberalism, but by importing, as I said, this sort of Newtonian metaphor, it's going to give them a very different flavour and character. So, if in the Newtonian system we have planets, in this system we have people. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the the you know, math and the whatever in economics. Um, you couldn't really do it on a podcast anyway. But I just want to... just. Go with me for a minute. And what happens if we treat economics just as an ideology? Well, let's start looking at the way that Newtonian metaphor is mapped on. So like I say, instead of planets, you have people. And you get from utilitarianism this idea of utility as a core central ideological idea you also have individuality as a core part of economic ideology Um, this is the, the primary way this is understood though is as the individual as the unit of analysis when we're looking at society we are sort of just looking at individuals And this is also attached to a very, very dominant conception of rationality. This is attached both to individuals and to society, this idea of rationality, both in the idea of rational individual, note that word coming again, rational individual decision making, and also as seeing the social and political world as rationally intelligible and operating according to fixed laws. So the positioning of utility within this little cluster of ideas is, I I would argue, exactly the same in all of the three authors, almost exactly the same in all of the three authors I've mentioned. So Jevons wrote of, quote, a unit of pleasure or pain that is from the quantitative effects of these feelings that we must estimate their comparative amounts end quote. Walras also linked a conception of the individual and utility to enhance and expand the idea of rationality, of rational individuals, and of a rationally explicable social order by assuming, quote, a standard measure of intensity of wants or intensity of utility, end quote. Um, now, including utility, can um, have other conclusions, right? If you're taking this sort of fundamentally consequentialist approach, where we're saying people have wants, they rationally move towards want satisfaction, well, then in the hands of someone like Bentham or John Stuart Mill, that could become a very egalitarian principle, right? Now, all of these authors rule that out in advance by saying there can be no interpersonal comparisons of utility. So, in other words, you know, we can measure one person's utility, we can measure another person's utility, but we can't ever compare them. And I view that as a direct ideological move. It's strengthening the strong individualism of this ideology and closing the door on ideas of um, redistribution. So what am I saying here? What am I arguing? I'm arguing that at the heart of ideologies are these clusters of closely connected ideas, of these different understandings of what core political terms mean. So I've been arguing in progressive liberalism. You have individuality, freedom, um society or social welfare limited and accountable power and developmental progress in libertarianism you have property individuality and freedom and then you get another riff in economic ideology you get individuality rationality utility coming together now all of these you can see both at the social level and at the individual so again taking you know the Newtonian metaphor Instead of planets moving according to you know, gravity or the forces acting upon them, you have people moving according to their rational self-interest and talking about phrases that have just blown up the world. In the same way as survival of the fittest seemed to just explode like a sun across all of the political thought from what the 1860s through to maybe even the middle of the 20th century rational self-interest and again rational self-interest you've got a just direct expression there of the core concepts of economic ideology now i can i can hear the objections to this right i can hear people saying that the economics is different somehow. This is very, very different to the, this sort of preposterous pseudoscience of social Darwinism and so on. So let, let's take a rational self-interest. I can see an economist. An economist would say, this is not an ideological statement. This is a modeling assumption. You know, people are messy and complicated. And I'm just trying to, like, understand some very simple things right? I'm trying to, like, get it down where I can make a graph, and I can try and just practice it. And I'll, I'll actually make the critique even stronger from The Economist. The Economist would roll his eyes and say, you social science historians and post-modernists, and, like, you're so busy, critiquing my assumptions and and my model and the starting points yes i know it's more complicated than that but just assume that this is true and really interesting conclusions follow from it that's i think what an economist would say in other words it is not an ideological statement it is a modeling assumption i'd argue that it's both As a widely propagated belief, rational self-interest works to create the behavior that it describes. So, firstly... As a descriptive, as a modelling assumption, as a whatever, this is, this idea has played an absolutely key role in the design and the maintenance and the structuring of all of the most important institutions in our society. And the way that institutions are designed will affect how their members think and, and act. Um, second... The assumption of self-interest, and I'm going to quote from Dale T. Miller, the norm of self-interest, quote, the assumption of self-interest is not simply an abstract theoretical construct, but a collectively shared cultural ideology, end quote. So even accounts of human nature that that are intended as descriptions get loose into the world because they provide a a language for us understanding the world ideologies are, are are glasses through which we can interpret the world how how people behave right and you need you need those glasses because you you have to make sense of very very complicated things so descriptions of human behaviour, like, say, rational self-interest, affect what people see, how they see it, and the social categories and descriptors they use to interpret that reality. So... Not just a new set of modelling tools, but a new vision of human nature has been introduced. I'm going to read you um, a quote from Michael Friedan's Ideology and Political Theory, which I've been using a lot to construct this series, and I really recommend this book. It's a a tough book, but um, I, I do really recommend it. And this sends a shiver up my spine when I read it. Quote... Under the ages of political economy, a new human being was introduced into liberalism, reduced to want fulfillment and bereft of more than a superficial gregariousness, of a sense of community or mutual obligation. Quote. And the the ideas of, of rational self-interest is so dominant today, we tend not to see it this way, as an ideological construct justified to us by the sort of pseudo-scientific use of science as a metaphor. So, whereas the survival of the fittest stuff seemed a bit kooky, the idea of rational self-interest seems almost like science. Now, because it's so ingrained in us, we have trouble seeing it this way. We don't tend to think of liberal individualism as a, an ideological construct that's been imposed on us. We sometimes even don't think of like a more specific libertarianism as such. But that's just counter-historical. So um, Charles A. Anderson, in his absolutely superb um lectures on political, economic, and social thought, which are online, and I do recommend them, says, quote, somewhere in our American mythology, I think we perceive that capitalism is the alternative to a planned society. But the fascinating thing about the creation of liberalism from about 1775 to 1850 is that it was planned. The state had to create the regime of contracts. The state had to create the market. The market wasn't just there. The state had to create, as a matter of public policy, a new regime, end quote. And this new regime is going to require not only new institutions, but a new type of person. The values that we the, the, of, of individualism and freedom and rationality and so on, of, of both a more broad liberalism, of a sort of classical liberalism, of what I've been calling a progressive liberalism, these didn't just come about, right? All of these different things that these ideologies are competing over had to be created and then to the extent that that, that we naturally view as intuitive a particular variant of them well that had to be created too so i'm going back to charles anderson here quote in a way the soviet union china countries like cuba have spent decades trying to do something that looks futile to us To entirely rebuild society, both institutionally and mentally, so that there will be a new kind of human being. And, you know, Americans look at them and say, that's crazy. You can't change human nature. We changed human nature. Liberals changed human nature. And it was done intentionally and with malice of forethought. End quote. Once this stuff detonates in your mind, it's hard to ever get it out of it. It is not just that our societal institutions, our representative democracy, uh, market-based economy, all of that, were designed by people who saw themselves as social engineers. Your mind was designed by people. The fact that you think it is a good thing to be free is not natural, as I argued in this whole series with Orlando Patterson. The way we think about what it is to be a person, the way we think of individuals as discrete units, the way specifically when trying to analyze individuals' behavior, we often think about them as parts of a Newtonian machine rationally fulfilling their wants and needs. None of this is natural. This was all designed. Your mind was designed by people in the 1800s. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong, even. But you have to think about it this way. Because when you don't, you just end up, as John Stuart Mill says, trusting the world around you to be right. So moving moving up and building up to society, if this is what this, this, this ideology of economics, which, by the way, I will say is somewhat distinct from libertarianism, and I'm going to get back to that point, if this is what it says about individuals who are sort of the planets in the system, let's move up and look at the system itself. So, I would argue that one really crucial Newtonian metaphor for getting this system off the ground is the idea of equilibrium, which has a specific, you know, scientific meaning in Newtonian terms. But now, look at the ideological work that it's doing. So, this idea of equilibrium, of like the balance of forces, this provides a really crucial step to showing how the realisation of the conception of human nature, you know, a rational, free individual, is associated with the best overall system. So this is sort of a claim that is sort of made from, on behalf of, by economists, that it turns out that everyone freely pursuing their rational self-interest leads to the best social system, leads to the best outcomes, right? Like, that's the sort of central crux On which all of the rest of it hangs, and another um, way of thinking about the ideological role this this plays is it is it provides a non-anarchistic conception of social functioning. So there's a tendency for really, really individualistic ideologies to revert to anarchism. And you can find examples of that in modern libertarian thought as well. But, you know, the logic is if individuals are, you know, all that exists, society doesn't matter, individual has all these rights, it's not that much of a leap to go from small government to no government at all. This carves out some role for the state as sort of creating the framework in which this equilibrium can happen, if that makes sense. But in doing so, of course, it massively cuts down on the conception of what the state can legitimately do. Um, It also... Again, I want to just go back to science as metaphor, but, like, this idea of equilibrium, again, it just sort of sounds very objective, doesn't it? It it facilitates the expression of central ideological goals in a very rationalistic-sounding way. Um, It it allows the, the, the ideologue to say, not my preference is for this particular set of social and political arrangements not only it is morally correct even that we have these political and social moral arrangements but it has been demonstrated that we should have them it has been proven right so again that's that move that ideologies always want to make they want to like clad themselves in iron they want to wear the armor of science and just as we saw all of the different ideologies—socialists, liberals, conservatives, libertarians, um, fascists as well, actually— all tried to armor themselves in, in biological language at one point. When economic come, e- economics comes, that will allow them to armor themselves in Newtonian language. And that's the one that really stuck. The biology didn't. It stuck for a while, and it was big for a while, but— um, it eventually broke down. So let's just quickly, you know, this is this is going on, becoming a huge project. But let's just quickly look at look at how it has been proven, right? Because this is really interesting. So was often seen as the foundational, and I'm using big scare quotes here, but proof of the free market system is known as if you do an economics degree. I mean, don't do an economics degree, but. I mean, maybe doing an economics degree, is useful to have access to this language, is known as the First Fundamental Welfare Theorem. And it states that a Walrasian equilibrium is necessarily Pareto efficient. Um, let, let me translate that out of jargon. Essentially, that free markets are the most efficient system. So there's a mathematical demonstration of this, which proceeds from the model of utility to build up, and I'm use, putting quotes around this word, a free economy, and demonstrate its efficiency. So it says in certain conditions, the you know, this set of arrangements will meet a certain set of efficiency criteria. I'm not going to go into all the math because that's not like my concern here. Um, although I will say, Once I hacked the math, it's not super complicated math, of the proof of the first welfare theorem. It's a really elegant and intuitive bit of reasoning. And you end up with this image in your head of a, a, a small economy with large numbers of buyers, sellers, producers. I've always thought of it as like a rustic, agrarian marketplace where everyone's selling corn. And, you know, you can go round, you buy from the cheapest supplier, which will mean that all the suppliers um, drop their prices to reach a certain equilibrium point. You see that concept? Equilibrium point. Um, now, it's generally accepted by critics and defenders alike, by economists, by whoever, that a Walrassian equilibrium, um, which evolves into this idea of perfect competition, does not closely resemble the actual operation of any market, either then or now, right? And this is where you get the second fundamental theorem of economics, which sort of says, well, when, what happens when one of the conditions isn't met? So, you know, what happens if there's a monopoly supplier or something? I'm not going to get into any of that. What I want to note is its role as a utopian vision it's not This is not just an abstract model. I think it's incredibly naive to read it as just a piece of theoretical reasoning. This is a utopian vision that's exercised a profound pull over our ideologies and and, and over our minds and how our how we think today you know um and, you know, whether or not we agree with it, you, you know, you. and those of us who, like, I am, you've guessed, right, I'm not pretending to be fully neutral here, I am sort of critical of a lot of these ways of thinking, but, but you have to admit that, that, that its structural elegance sets it apart from other such visions, and it's so clearly impacted The way we all think now. Now, final, final point on this is I can still hear people saying, you know, you're you're absolutely wrong to treat economics as an ideological position. It is a method of analysis. It is neutral. This is another thing political ideologies do to try and get ahead. Remember, you've always got to remember, political ideologies are in competition with each other. They're in competition with each other to control the institutions of the world, but they're also in competition with each other to control you, your mind, how you think about the world. Like I say, how you think about the world, even at a subconscious level, is the product of ideological fights going back over the last few centuries. But if you're still not vibing with me that um that there is a huge ideological component to the development of economics, think about the use of the word freedom. So it's very common in economics, right, to talk of free markets. Well what's that word doing there? If this is just a neutral method of analysis, if this isn't someone or something, I guess, rather, with its hands really in the political fray. What's this value term doing there? So we've already seen how progressive liberalism and libertarianism have been fighting over freedom. That's not what freedom means. This is what freedom means. Well, now you're going to have another idea, and there's going to be an interesting back and forth and trade between this idea and the libertarian one, borrowing from each other, sometimes disagreeing, an interesting relationship, where economics is going to say, no, this is what freedom means, right? So this is this is directly, and this is why I say economics should really be understood as an ideology, it's directly trying to compete for the control of words. So. This is, again, something where nobody else agrees with me, but I'm just going to argue my case. I think the conception of freedom you find in economics is a positive one, not a negative one. Negative freedom is the freedom to be left alone, right? To be unconstrained. I think the definition I quite like of negative freedom um, is the absence of deliberate interpersonal constraints, right? Whereas positive freedom is a sort of umbrella term covering all the other different conceptions, like democratic freedom, for instance, right? Now, I have always, always, always argued that... The, the, the economic conception of freedom is a positive one, as it positively gives value to specific types of individuals and specific types of collectives. So if a pure negative conception of freedom um, is essentially... Um, The absence of all interpersonal constraints. Economic freedom only considers those constraints which affect the the ability of individuals to pursue their lives through rational self-interest or to use their property rights. So other constraints, such as those caused by the enforcement of property rights or by the absence of property itself, are ruled out. So to give you a specific example of that, if I want to walk across a field, but the field is, is, is private property, and a policeman says, you can't walk across this field, my negative liberty has been impacted, but my economic liberty has not, right? So so economic liberty is, is a positive conception of freedom that is doing work in ideological combat, right? So let's just quickly look uh, at what freedom is doing here, right? And I'm going to say, like, let's start at the individual level, right? On the individual level, you know, we, we talked about this this idea of rational self-interest. Freedom is, is a positive valorization of that, economic ideology demands that institutional forms recognize and protect people and their ability to act according to this set of motives now freedom also works on collectives think about the idea of the the firm the um the company right Um, Companies are going to be arising in this period. Um, The the critical, um, at least in UK history, bit of legislation was the Joint Stock Companies Act in 1856. So just prior to the start of our story, they've set up modern corporations. And again, this is something that's so intuitive to us now that that we sort of forget that it was something that was created. Um, I really recommend a book called The Company, a short history of a revolutionary idea that that really goes into this in depth. But I'm not going to go through all of that here. But just considering the concept of freedom, the, the company is understood as a person in exactly the same sense that individuals are understood. They act according to their rational self-interest, right? It's, it's the same model of, the same construction of humanity is being applied to a collective. And you, you, I'm not the first person to point out the contradiction between um, the the strong individualism of libertarianism. And also it's got these collectives in it that are given inviolable rights as if they were individuals, now, there's various moves libertarians will make to get out of that contradiction, but it, it does seem to be one, at least on the the surface. So you've got a freedom operating both at the level of the individual and at the collective in terms of a company or a firm. You also have it operating um, on the level of the market. Um, so... The idea of the market, right, and I'm going to get into this really in the final part of this series, this is the concept that most clearly expresses the societal vision of this ideology, where the market is understood as a free, and again, just notice every time that we're getting words like freedom. If there's one thing I want you to take away from this series, it's to hear the, 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 the way ideologies are, are Filtering into our language, right? So when you hear words like individuality, freedom, progress, rest, rationality, what's that word doing in the sentence? What social vision is it trying to, to get into the back of our minds? But so the market is understood as the free arrangement of individuals and firms. So both the conception of freedom and that of the market, give this really positive spin to this idea of human interactions embedded in the ideology. Finally, look at what makes a state free or not, according to this idea of freedom. States are considered free to the extent that they support these market arrangements. It's it's worth bearing in mind that not just the arrangement of the regime of contracts, the market itself, but also the ideology that justifies these are deliberate creations of the state. Keep that in mind about anti-government ideology, the reflexive urge to limit government, (laughs) The, 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 the types of subtle primings that when someone says, oh, but look, if you have something you want to sell and... I want to buy. Um, we should be able to do that without anyone getting in our way, right? <laughs> Here's what's ironic about that: is you've just appealed on a subconscious level to a number of ways of seeing the world that are the product of that are that are the creation of the state. Our minds were built by ideologies, and those ideo- and th- that process involved state power. If you really want to go through the rabbit hole. With this stuff. Now, what's all of this going to mean for political ideologies? So, let's sum up everything that I've covered so far. I've said there was a period in which, starting with people like Herbert Spencer, the idea of evolution, this phrase survival of the fittest, became like an armour that every ideology wanted to use. They, They all wanted to say, Our conception of moral concepts, our societal vision, our vision of human nature, is not only more moral than yours, it is scientifically correct. Our conception of society and politics is supported by evolutionary science, right? And they competed over that. Then there's this other thing that happened where another scientific metaphor was used in exactly the same way that of newtonian physics which eventually simply became economic science and just just notice what they did there didn't say economic ideology didn't say economic mode of analysis economic science ideologies are always trying to claim objectivity to give themselves that edge over their rivals now one of those stuck and the other didn't so isn't that interesting? Not only are ideologies competing against each other, and they're using they're, they're using the, the aura of objectivity of science, there's also competitions between which type of scientific metaphor is used. Are we going to talk about societies as biological systems or Newtonian ones? Now, just as when the Libertarians, they've always been at the forefront of this notice. When libertarians started importing claims from biology into their political arguments, other ideologies didn't take it laying down. They started saying, well, hang on. If society is an organism, that actually might mean socialist things or liberal things or fascist things. Fascists were very keen on the idea of society as an organism. Just in the same case, The Newtonian metaphor, neoclassical economics, would seem to align quite closely with the libertarian vision, and libertarians will certainly argue that. But actually, the dominant ways it's going to get used are by these progressive liberals that I've been talking about. They're going to come in and say, well, actually, if you really think about the world as a Newtonian system, that actually um, leads you to very, very different conclusions. And they're going to compete just as they competed for, you know, who was the best representative of biological metaphors. They're now going to start competing for who is the best channeling of Newtonian metaphors. And in the next part, I'm going to zero in on just two figures, Keynes and Hayek, who are both so great to read. Like, I've been reading you some quotes I like on this one, but these are both just so fun to read. Um, And that's going to be the next part of our story. We'll pause there. This one's been long. We're setting it up. But I wanted to really do justice to what's actually going on. In the the, the fights that we're going to see coming up, rather than just saying, oh, this is what this person said, this is what this person said, to really get into the level of what political ideologies are doing. So next time, we'll look at how going through to the interwar years and accumulating in the creation of welfare states, liberalism, progressive liberalism, and libertarianism competed for each other with each other for the control of words and competed with each other for the for the idea of uh scientific correctness and scientific authority thank you for listening to the political philosophy podcast next week um As per feedback, people told me don't space the series out, just do it in one block. So next week I'll offer my next part. I know how I'm going to end the series, I just don't quite know how many episodes it's going to take to get me there. I'm going to try and do it in one, but we'll see. I initially thought the entire series would just be one. And I'm just trying to make a product that feels right to me. So... We'll see how it is, but one, maybe two more episodes of this, and then we'll be back to interviews. Like I said at the beginning, if this appeals to you, uh, please do share it. Like, Like I say, I'm trying something new here. I won't even nag you to sponsor me on Patreon this time, but if you like it, please share it and get it out there. I really hope you did, and yeah, I hope you'll join us next week for the next one of these. Until then.